0: an interview with Frank Rehack recorded at the um, Kansas City NAD Convention on January um, January fifteenth, nineteen eighty three Frank, why don't you uh, uh, tell me a little bit about your background before you really hit New York City, uh, your playing background, and uh, um, were you on the road
1: before you hit New York? Well, I was born in New York, actually, so uh, it's kind of the reverse. I was, I was in New York, and then I went on the road. When were uh, you born? I in what borough? I was born in Brooklyn, New York. in the Benson-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn uh, on July 7th, oh yeah, July 7th, 1926, so that makes me, as of today, 56 years old, Uh, although I feel a lot younger than that. Uh, Let's see, I started off playing cello, I started off playing piano actually when I was about six years old. I started studying piano when I was about eight, but I started playing when I was about six, and I was reaching up (laughs) to the keyboard, you know, I had to reach over my head to to get to the keyboard, but uh, I I just was naturally attracted to playing the piano when I was a kid. And by the time I was 10 years old, I had no uh, doubt about what I was gonna do with my life. I was gonna be a musician. And, And I'd never, you know, how kids grow up and they say, well, I'll be a choir chief or I'll be this or that. Uh, I never had any doubt about being a musician at the time I was nine or ten years old, and I studied uh, piano for about six years, Uh, I played cello for several years, and I played the baritone horn for several years, I became a pretty good baritone horn player, and I hated jazz music. Uh, What was the first jazz you heard? Well, the first jazz that I heard, that I listened to, uh, an interesting story, uh, uh, the very well, let me put it this way. I took up trombone when I was in the Navy because if I didn't take it up, I was going to be loading ammunition on a on an aircraft carrier, and I figured that was no part of my lifestyle that I wanted to uh, uh, you know get hooked into. Uh, so I told people that I, I told our, our chief in the Navy that I could play trombone and I could play baritone trombone so I could play bugle calls on trombone. And so this morning uh, I found out that if I didn't become an instant trombone player that i was going to be uh, loading <laughs> ammunition starting that day so uh, that afternoon i played my first job on the trombone and of course all i could play were notes in the, in the first position and uh, it was a very funny theme because we were a thousand miles out at sea and nobody could could care less whether i could play the trombone or not you know we were all in the navy and it was during the war and uh, and so i made these funny noises and uh, got through the first day, and I, I began, you know, seriously trying to figure out what that slide was all about. And I had a good look from playing baritone horn, but no, <laughs> good feel, but no hit, you <laughs> know. Uh, no slide. I didn't know what the slide was all about, so I had to learn that. And uh, that took some time. <laughs> I'm still working on it, 35 years later. But
0: uh, well, what uh, was the, the, Who were the first jazz people you heard that you wanted to emulate?
1: uh right around right shortly after i took up trombone i heard uh oddly enough bill harris playing uh woody uh caledonia and apple honey and that stuff and it was the first time i heard trombone that i really enjoyed the sound of it that i thought it was exciting and sparked something within me i also began listening to lawrence brown who i thought was uh, a phenomenal trombone player in those days and i still do i still td didn't turn you on uh Tommy Dorsey, not particularly, no. I, I listened to him in the early days of my playing. But I went through a whole phase of, of listening to uh, all of some of the real old-time guys. And I, mind you, this was during the war when I was overseas, so I didn't have access to a, a great big raft of records, although uh, I managed to uh, get uh, close to a young lady who owned the only jazz record store in Honolulu. So uh, <laughs> so that made life a little easier <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, I could listen to all the jazz music that I wanted that was available at that time. And uh, uh, the first jazz record that I ever uh, tried to actually emulate was a, a thing called I'm Confessing by J.C. Higginbotham. And it was a great old, uh, I think it was a black and white record, uh, 12-inch 78. And this is, you know, this is all before tape machines were not mm-hmm. invented yet, uh, 33 and a third records, stereo wasn't invented, right. you know, this is old stuff. And uh, so I heard this record of "Unconfessing" by J.C. Higginbotham, and I copied it off. I wrote it all out, and one day I was playing this big band, you know, we used to play a medley every once in a while, and, and the guys would, you know, play some jazz choruses, and I said, listen, I want to play a tune, you know, and they said, sit down, you can't play jazz, and I said, yes I can, you know, and, they said, "Okay, what do you want to play?" You know, and I said, "I'm confessing." So I stood up and I played, "I'm confessing," and I played this great chorus. You know, it was a wonderful chorus. I still remember parts of it. And uh, and they looked at me with their mouths open and they said, "Man, we didn't know you could play jazz." You know, so there I was, uh, the jazz player. Except that, of course, a jazz player has to uh, innovate. You know. And... Uh, about the third day down the only tune i could play was on <laughs> Confessin," and i played it exactly the same every time you know so people began getting suspicious you know so i had to start changing some of the notes around and i started fishing around and figuring out different notes to play instead of the original things and uh and i'd put this record on and i'd try to play along with it and play a little bit different than, than uh, jc did uh and i eventually learned how to play jazz almost by doing stuff like that uh, the second tune I learned was Blue Skies by, I've forgotten who played the chorus on it, but, but I learned how to play Blue Skies, and then uh, oh, and the, whole, the whole series of, of early tunes. Now, the first time that I heard any bebop was a different situation. Uh, I had, by that time, I had learned to, to kind of go through Jack Teagarden, Lawrence Brown, Bill Harris, Jason uh, Higgins, you know. Oh, yeah, this is early 40s, you know, 43, 44, 45, around in there. And uh, and I was still in the Navy, and we were in Hawaii, and uh, one night some of the guys in the band, in fact, you might remember uh, the orchestra in Washington, uh, it was a great group that Willis Conover had a lot to do with, called the orchestra, and the drummer's oh, yeah. name was Joe Timer. Was it Bill Potts band, uh, was it? Well, it was the predecessor of the Bill Potts French band, Day. actually, yeah. But there was a drummer by the name of Joe Timer that was in that orchestra. But prior to that, he was in the Navy with me. And uh, he was a real fine drummer. And uh, he passed away some years ago. But uh, there were three or four guys that later became the nucleus of the orchestra in Washington that were in Hawaii. And one night, they came in with this, this record of uh, Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. And they said, man, you got to listen to this. This is the new music. This is it. Fabulous stuff. And so they put it on, and it was the most god awful stuff I would ever heard in my life. I couldn't believe it. The trumpet player was hitting clams all over the place, and the alto player was out of tune. And I said, "You guys are crazy, man! This is the worst, you know." And and they said, "No, listen to it again, you know." And boy, they had me practically tied down to this chair, listening to this record of "Now's the Time" and "Billy's Bounce," you know, which by today's standards is uh, almost elevator music. You know, it's it's so. It's so uh, pretty, tame, sure, and, and you know, melodic. Uh, anyway, in those days, man, I was revolutionary stuff. And uh, I finally got so angry, you know, just sitting here listening to this thing over and over, and hearing these guys make mistakes. That I took the record, an old seventy-eight record, and I broke it over my knee, and it, you know, went into about eighteen pieces. And I almost got lynched. Uh, and now mind you, this is before tape recorders, you know, so the only way that we could, that I could repair the damage, because I had to do that, it was wartime, <laughs> and there were no other copies of this thing, want to take this record and put it together oh, like a I jigsaw puzzle, and then tape up all of one side of it, and then flip it over like a flapjack, get it on the turntable, and then we had an old Wallensack wire recorder, and we taped it, you know, with, with all these clicks from the broken <laughs> things that are on this record, and then take the tape off and do the same thing on the other side. So we had this dilapidated <laughs> version of Now's the Time and Billy's Bounce, you know. And every job that we went to, and every time we played anywhere, you know, these guys would demand to play these tunes. And uh, it took all of three weeks, I guess, before I started liking it, you know. It was, it was uh, my first real experience with with keeping my ears open, you know, which I've always tried to do, until, uh, right up until now. Uh, and it was a real lesson for me because of course the stuff that i that i detested you know i began to uh, see see some traces of something really different and something new mm-hmm. and something uh, you know portent of things to come so to speak and uh, so i've always uh, thought about that incident when you know when i say well man this guy sounds terrible you know i uh, I'll, I'll always give anything a second listen to or a third listen to because uh, you never know but you know how far your ears can be opened up, sure. or how closed they are, you know, to to not allow you to hear something new.
0: How'd you make the jump from a uh, military trombonist to a professional trombonist?
1: Well, uh, during the war, there were a bunch of uh, bands in Hawaii. There were about 14 good bands. There was a band called the Hellcats down there, which was a uh, mostly Jimmy Lunce. This was all basically guys. to entertain the troops. Yeah, it was sure it was, you know. Guys were coming in and out of there and going out to Guadalcanal, Canal and going to mm. out on ships and, you know, eventually over to Japan and whatnot. So it was, uh, there were a lot of big Army and Navy bases there, and Marine bases. And uh, I began fiddling around with jazz, you know, and, and learning more and more about it, just, just simply by doing it every day, by practicing and, and, and trying to play as much as I could and uh, there were no educational tools in those days and no books that said, use this scale for this situation or anything like that. You just you listened a lot, and, and uh, I used to try to emulate uh, Ben Webster a lot on tenor, you know, because I loved the way he played. And I would try to play trombone choruses the way he did on tenor, or Lester Young, you know, several different people. But uh, uh, I eventually got a job playing with a sextet, and I eventually became the leader of that sextet and we used to play six nights a week all over the island in, uh, at various service clubs. So it was a golden opportunity for me to just stretch out and learn how to play jazz and and really uh, practice that. And then, along with my classical training on the other instruments, you know, it gave me a pretty well-rounded base to to uh, become a professional. Anyone else in that band that went on to play? Uh, there was one other fellow, Erwin Price, who was. Uh, now with the Philharmonic, I just found out tonight. Right. And, uh, but he, you know, he helped me a lot right in the very early days until he got out of the Navy himself. But uh, uh, I don't think that any of the other players uh, made music their career. There was one fellow by the name of Bill Vesley who worked around Chicago, an alto player, for a few years, but I lost track of him. happened. Nobody ever became famous, certainly. So, uh, John McDade was in that band, mm-hmm. Promo players all know John McDade, so he was in that band with me, and he was he was with me the day I took up Promo, so <laughs> he, he can verify did he, know it crazy,
0: from the, so, yeah. did he tape that first day though? That wasn't on the tape. <laughs> no, there was no tape. <mumbles> <laughs> that tape. Well then, uh, uh, so that's how you got some of your experience. Um, when was the transition <clears throat> to professional player, or the first gig well, outside the Navy?
1: First gig outside the Navy was very funny because I was telling you earlier today that I began writing to various people and uh, I lived in uh, lived in Long Island. You know, my folks lived out there, about 50 miles out, uh, in a town called Bohemia. And uh, uh, there's a town of Patchogue close by, which uh, had a uh, hotel in it with a cocktail lounge. And I heard about a group that played there on weekends. that was uh, supposed to be. Some pretty good jazz players and i went down this one night with my i think i had my valve trombone because i was also playing valve trombone and playing baritone horn it was great to be able to play both instruments and i think i went down there with my valve trombone the first time and i asked to sit in with this group and uh and they said oh no the manager won't let us. you know the manager doesn't let him and they didn't know me and uh, of course nobody <laughs> I didn't know me at that time so <laughs> so i was just trying to convince these guys by by saying um, uh oh yeah i know grovin high and oh yeah i know you know i know this tune and i know that tune and just trying to use the language to to gain entrance to to uh, mm-hmm. sit in and i kept going at it all night and, and the tenor player would not let me sit in he was the leader and finally at the uh, oh the beginning of the last set i got the piano player and i said please been sitting here all night. I said, "You know, you gotta let me just sit in on one tune." So as luck would have it, he, he convinced the the tenor player to let me sit in. So I sat in on one tune, and the manager walked in as I was playing. And by the 45 minutes later, he had fired the tenor player and hired me to be the leader of the band. <laughs> so so this poor guy went back to hauling ice for a living or something whatever he did in the daytime, you know, and. Uh, and it's funny, because I just wrote to him, uh, to this tenor player who, uh, oh, uh, a few years ago, went blind. And uh, so I wrote him a, a nice letter. And we remained friends, even though that incident happened. You know, I, I think I hired him to work for me the next weekend or something like that. And we, But anyway, that was my first professional job. And I worked there every Friday and Saturday for a few weeks or a few months. And uh, had you heard JJ by this time? Uh, no, I hadn't. Well, who was um, the most advanced trombone uh, set outside? Phil the Harris was still pops. Was still and this was in 1946. Mm-hmm. 19... Well, it's still early yeah, for uh, Yeah, 1946, maybe early 47. Then I went up to a place called Burden Lake up in, uh, up near Albany. And I went up with a, trom- uh, with a band that consisted of four trombones, a trumpet, a sax and four rhythm piece spin and i was playing valve trombone and slide trombone both and uh, we were working believe it or not for 13 bucks a week in room and board <laughs> six nights a week and uh, eight hours a night you know and, and uh but you, you put everything together doing and, it. though oh
0: yeah Pulling yeah chops together to yeah
1: work. and it was it was great uh art mooney's band came through which was not a particularly good band but you know did a lot of singing of four leaf clovers and stuff like that and uh they wouldn't even let us take the night off when our Moonies' band came through so we played opposite them our band and art heard me and uh, he wanted me to come out to california with him to go to the hollywood palladium they were going to be there in about six weeks and uh just listening to the band i couldn't i couldn't uh, even then i couldn't hack could, it it just you know singing for a living and all that didn't, didn't make it for me and uh, so I declined. But this other job folded up about two weeks later. And I drove home after work one night. And I hadn't been home a half hour, and the phone rang. And uh, Art was in Salt Lake City. And they were on their way out to California. And he said, come on out. He said, I want you to join the man if you're not working. And I said, boy, the Hollywood Palladium, you know, and being without a job <laughs> changed things considerably. So uh, I didn't know anything about Union scale or first class traveling or any of that kind of stuff. So I rode a coach for three days out to Salt Lake City with my horn between my knees, you know, trying not to go to sleep so somebody would not steal the horn. And I got to Salt Lake City and I found out that I was I didn't wasn't hired, but I was auditioning for this job. Oh. so oh, I was sick when I heard that, and uh, I figured that I had to I had to get the job. You know, I wasn't about to turn around and go back to New York. So. There were four guys that auditioned. Three guys came in from California and me. And uh, there was one chair open, and I ended up getting it. And uh, it was either luck or I don't know what. Somebody blew me out for me, and I I got the job. And I went to the Hollywood Palladium with Art. And uh, I spent about six weeks out there, and I met a lot of Hollywood guys. And I went to a lot of sessions. And Billy Bergs was in full swing then. was out there, and Teddy Edwards. And, Did you hear them live? And, and I got to hear them live for the first time. And uh, <coughs> oh, a, whole, you know, a whole bunch of uh, Billy Eckstein's big band was there, and I heard them, and Wardell Gray. And, Did you hear Jimmy
0: Nipper out there? Jimmy must have been I, out there about that time.
1: He probably was, but I don't think I heard him. But uh, I don't recall all the names that I heard, but there were some, some great players, and there was lots of musical activity you know, as far as uh, Going out and playing. I remember uh, there was a little place right off Hollywood Vine where Ben Webster and uh, a guy named Freddie Otis, piano player, and uh, Benny Carter were playing. And I used to, I used to march in there every night as soon as the Hollywood Palladium job was open, was closed. Uh, some some nights I'd have somebody hold my case and hold the door open, and at whatever tune they were playing, I'd go marching right through this Were you sitting place, in you know, at some of these and places? I'd, and I'd go in, I'd, I'd, I'd sit
0: in. Yeah. What was the, the atmosphere uh, out in the coast at this time? Being a, a newcomer from the East, were you just accepted, basically, on your musicianship? Your, your oh, yeah. yeah, it was, it was,
1: for me, it was fabulous, yeah. Uh, ben Webster and I became really good friends. Benny Carter and I became good friends. In fact, yeah. to this day, you know, we, we still, uh, send each other regards through friends who we haven't seen each other in years, but uh, I have friends out on the coast and they always tell me, oh Benny Carter said if I see you to tell you hello, you know, and and he's a real gentleman anyway, and and Ben Webster, you know, was such a a giant, he used to just pick me up by one hand and and hold me up, he used to call him the beast, (laughs) he was a wonderful player. So uh, all of those things were happening around that time, and I spent Oh, almost a year with Art Mooney, around 1949, and of course, I, you know, I was I was very new in the music business still. Uh,
0: but you were in the, uh, the union, but, member now you but, joined oh, the yeah, union. Oh yeah, I was in the, in the
1: union, and I was I was also I joined the union in New York actually before I'd gone after the post, and uh, uh, I got back to New York and I was working the metal book with Art Mooney, and Gene Krupa had been looking for a trombone player. And was Jane that to replace Rambolino? No, that was to replace somebody else. And he had Frank and he had Irby, and he was looking for somebody else. For, for, I forgot who left, but... Somebody whose mm-hmm. name I don't recall. Anyway, he was looking for a trauma player, and he was auditioning guys for about two weeks, and I felt like King Krupa's band was way above my head. You know, playing with Art Mooney's band was one thing, where he sang half the night, you know, and he did funny, <laughs> funny antics, you know, and wore funny green jackets. but to play with a jazz man like uh, uh, you know Don twist was on the band, Roy Aldridge was on the band. And, uh, there was some you know really good jazz players. Charlie Kennedy, uh, I think Char- Charlie Ventura may have been on the band for a short time there. But there was some, Melligan writing for that band. Um, Jerry was writing for some of the stuff. We uh, call who else wrote the band? But anyway, it was a really pop notch band and. Uh, I felt, I was a little nervous about, you know, even auditioning for the band and a guy named Al Stewart, trumpet player in New York, uh, finagled me into coming down to a rehearsal one day, we were walking down the street, and he said, listen, I have to stop in Norwood for a minute, he said, come on up with me, you know, and so I went in, and I happened to have my horn with me, and we walked into the studio, and he said, Gene, here's the guy I've been telling you about, and he stuck me in and closed the door, and Gene said, great, kid, get your horn out, you know, and, and there I was. And what did the audition consist of? Was it reading uh, the book or just yeah. playing with Cooper? No, I had a, I, the band was rehearsing, oh, it, I see. and I had to sit in with the band. And he had auditioned about 30 guys already, and they were leaving town that afternoon to go to Allentown, Pennsylvania. And so that was my first meeting with Frank and Irving. And, and uh, it was very funny because, well, Irving wasn't there that day, but uh, Frank Rosalino was there, and Gene asked me to, you know, play some stuff and play some jazz, and I played some jazz, and, and he said, okay, we'll leave. The bus is leaving at 2 o'clock, and I said, well I, well, I can't go anywhere. I have a job over at the Meadowbrook, you know, and he said, well, kid, you want this job. You better get somebody to, to cover you tonight, you know, and, and just get your stuff together, so I did, and uh, I got Chauncey Welsh to cover me <laughs> over at the Meadowbrook for the next couple of weeks, and g- gave my notice via Chauncey, and, uh, Two, you know, three hours later, I was on a bus going to Allentown, Pennsylvania with Frank Rosalino and company, <laughs> and, uh, it was a wild experience, you know, was tremendous. That's been a crazy, but, Frank was crazy, wasn't he? Oh, I mean, he was, you know, he was nice crazy, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Wonderful. And, uh, well, you know, uh, for the next year, we became best of friends, and we were inseparable. You know, everywhere we went, we'd, we would hit every club and every one-nighter. We didn't care whether, whether the club was open or not. <laughs> we were there playing, you know. It was, it was uh, every night Frank and I would be out playing in some joint, you know, after our regular job. And uh, I remember one night sitting by the side of the railroad tracks with some some guy from Peoria, Illinois, holding a cymbal and a drumstick <laughs> whacking away on this thing. And I, God knows what we were doing there to this day, but Frank and I had our horns out and we were playing, you know, and, and I had a car, so we were... I uh, bought a car when I, right after I joined that band, and so Frank and I would travel around on my convertible, and we just had one heck of a great time. It was, it was just a marvelous playing with him. And some funny little incidents al- along the way, with, uh, Irby and Frank and I you know, worked really well together as a team, as, as you probably could imagine. Uh, we fought alike musically, and, and uh, all liked to play, and, and it was just a, a really compatible situation. And I remember there were times where where we would trade the book around, you know, and uh, trade our parts me. around, you mm-hmm. know, and yeah. And uh, then it got to the point where we knew the book so well that we wouldn't set up any music stands, and we wouldn't take the books out. And Gene would sit there, and he'd say, 247, 381, 485. <laughs> and and everybody would say, okay, why don't you play first on this, you know, and we wouldn't even have any music out, and we all know the parts. So, we, And Gene would... Flip out, you know. He'd say, "Yeah, you, know, you gotta look like you're working for a living." You think you gotta sit there with your legs crossed <laughs> and you play these parts, and, and you know, and you couldn't fault us because we were playing them perfectly, <laughs> but we just knew the book. <laughs> so it was great. So we kept these music stands in front of us and never opened the book for you know, but rarely. And uh, and we all learned a lot from each other. I, I would like to think. Uh, I certainly learned a lot from those two. You know, they were both fabulous trombone players. And, uh, you know, I think the team was, was one of the high points in my musical career as far as playing with a trombone section, That was—you couldn't beat
0: it. Well, you played with some fine sections, it seemed like, for a while. Jim Dahl, Jimmy Cleveland, and Frank Rehack was almost a house rhythm section for bands in New York and recording sessions, and you guys worked so well together. Plus, you were kind of foiled for each other, the styles of—well, um, there was a nice contrast between yeah. the three of you.
1: No, I enjoyed playing with, with uh, that section, too. We did a lot of stuff with Johnny Richards, and we did an album together with Gene Quill. And uh, it was always fun playing with Jimmy Cleveland. We, you know, trombone players are, are just naturally nice guys, I guess. <laughs> we always got along so well. You I know, just had had fun on and off the stand and became uh, great personal friends. And I still see Cleveland you know, when I get out to California. I always make it a point to either call him or look him up. See.
0: Was was Woody the the big band you got with? The, was that a few years later?
1: Uh, Woody, I went with. Let's see. Well, from Gene Krupa, I went with. Oh, he's a good one for you. I went with Jimmy Dorsey after I left Gene Krupa, and it, by then it's 1950, and I stayed with G, uh, with Jimmy for almost three years. I quit the band the first night because they went overtime and I missed my train out going Long because Jimmy was kind of juiced out at the end of the night and he wouldn't stop playing and uh so i said well i'm not going to work for a leader that's a you know the juice bug it's that's a real fight you know you never know where you are so so i uh, i gave my notice the very first night on the band and he gave me a raise the next day and i stayed on and i ended up staying on for about three years and uh and that band was you know a different kind of band it wasn't a jazz band but if you recall tommy and jimmy were not on the best of terms at that time. And so my instructions from Jimmy were, he said, anything you can do to make Tommy mad, he said, go ahead and do it. He said, if you, you know if you can play something that's so wild that he can't play it, he said, go ahead. You know, he said, I'll love you for it. So, so if you remember, in those days, there were uh, air checks every night. you know, And you could hear Tommy Dorsey from the Chase Hotel, and you could hear so-and-so from Catalina Island, and you could hear uh, another band from the New Yorker, you know, and all that. So, so uh, we'd get on these on these uh, radio shows, and and uh, Jimmy would just cut me loose and let me do whatever I wanted, you know, as far as uh, solo stuff. So I had lots of solos to play, and uh, and I could you know do all the pyrotechnics I wanted, anything. And I would get a call from Tommy about every three months, you know, three or four months, you know, every once in a while he'd call up and say, "What are you playing with that guy for? Why don't you come with my band?" You know, and I'd say, "I've been why would i want to come with your band you would never play with his I band said, i'll never get anything to play and i said i can't make any money you know i said jimmy's paying me well and i enjoy working with him and i'm playing all i want you know he said but you'd be getting a lesson from me every time i pick up my horn and i said well that's probably true but you know not in so many words who needs a lesson from you you know so. <laughs> you're a cocky kid anyway so so uh uh, I would use that of course against Jimmy, you know, I go down and I'd say, Jimmy, guess what? The old gray fox called me last <laughs> night and he'd say, Oh man, how much is it gonna cost this time? you know and I said, Well, you know, you better tack on another twenty five or whatever I thought I, <laughs> he would go for at the time. And so I kept getting oh, razors. <laughs> and and uh, so we had a great relationship, Jimmy and I, you know, and he was a very sick guy as far as booze went and uh, I drove his car for him. He, he used to have a new Cadillac all the time, and for a long time, I drove his car and, and kind of took care of him. You know, cause he was—he liked to drink, and you know, he'd get uh, messed up by the end of the night, and needed somebody to put him to bed and make sure that he got home right, So, but uh, he was a guy that loved music, that loved to play, uh, and it was a shame, you know, that he was in that kind of shape. But that's another story entirely. I mean, I I enjoyed working with him. I thought he was a, a terrific guy, and I always thought of him, to this day, very talented. He, he was a, a good man to work for, and a good musician. For, you know, for his idiom of playing, I thought he was a fine musician. <laughs> uh, I left his band though to go with Woody, not really to go with Woody. I I left his band to go, to go into New York, and that's uh, around that time I started dabbling with heroin, and. Uh, you know i told you that story about patty page and uh doggy in the window and all that that was while i was on jimmy dorsey's band that that record was made and uh <coughs> and then i left the band in austin texas nick travis and i both left the band the same night and we drove back to new york and on the way up we started talking about getting a little sonora having a little pace to relax us you know and Needless to say, the minute we hit the Lincoln Tunnel, we were on our way over to the connection.
0: Was this, uh, were most of the guys in the band and in, uh, in activities like this?
1: Not on Jimmy's band, no. Uh, not, in fact, very, very little. There were, I don't know, there might have been a couple of guys that smoked pot. But Jimmy's band was pretty much a family band. There were about eight wives traveling with the band. In the world, and, uh, so there was not much opportunity to get too wild you know
0: did you have a specific goal going back to new york did you just want to get in the studio work uh, we'll,
1: yeah we wanted to but you didn't uh, have anything set? i didn't have anything set, but uh nick had uh, the kate smith show and he had something else going too i think it was top on. was so he on an nbc
0: staff for a while
1: too yeah but anyway he had these jobs coming up and uh and I knew that if I got back to New York, I could get work. You know, we had been working in and out of New York for quite a long time, and people said, listen, if you, if you settle down here, you know, you could probably get some recording dates, and you could get this and all that. <laughs> and so I did. And and uh, for a while, everything went went quite well. Uh, you know, I began to get some recording dates, and I began to get them. But I, I was dabbling with, with heroin all, you know, all along the way. and. Uh, and eventually, everything fell apart from that. By 1955, 56, uh, early, well, 1955, actually, nobody would touch with a 10-foot pole. They, they knew that I was a junkie. And, and, uh, they yeah, you're still making, you're still
0: playing a lot of jazz, though.
1: Uh, yeah, not not that much. It was, it was already slowing down. How do you explain, mm-hmm.
0: in 57,
1: you got the new Star Award well, from Downbeat. I will tell you. Uh, in 1955, I took about nine months off, and I became a plumber. And I stopped using, and I had been arrested a couple of times by then. And uh, I stopped, I stopped using, I stopped everything. Just cold turkey? Yeah, this. I stopped playing, stopped everything. And I, Did you get any help? And I no, I went, I went home, and I kicked for a couple of weeks out of my folks' house. And then I just looked around for a job that had nothing to do with music, and I didn't know anything but music, since that's all I had done. And so I became a plumber. A farmer's helper, and I learned that whole business. You know, I, I spent I don't know around nine months doing that, but I learned pretty much the whole business to the point where I could go in and install you know a whole plumbing system and all that by myself. And uh, and I stayed away from all all kinds of drugs, and I felt pretty good about being able to do that. And I came back into New York one night, and went into Charlie's Tavern. The old place that I remember fondly. <laughs> and, Where was that? Uh, that was on 7th Avenue between 51st and 52nd Street. And Anyway, went in there and uh, there was a fist fight going on and a fellow named Al Robertson, a promo player, got hit in the face and his teeth full loose and all that. He was supposed to work at Birdland with Eddie Grady and the Commanders. <laughs> I remember, I don't you remember know. of Eddie Grady? Well, he was a drummer and uh, and he had a band with four trombones in it. And uh, it wasn't exactly a jazz band, but somehow they got a job with Birdman. So uh, this fellow Al asked me to go down and sit in with him. So I went down. Well, I said, listen, I don't have a horn. I don't have a mouthpiece. I haven't played in nine months. He said, man, it's just playing third trombone. You know, you can do it. And anyway, I finally went down and, and uh, played the job. This was on a Friday night. Uh, saturday night i did the job again incidentally friday night right after the first set a bunch of my uh, old friends came down and they said oh man you're back in the business come on up with us you know we'll turn you on and i said i'll go with you and i'm done with that stuff forever and uh so we went over to the Alvin hotel right across the street and they threw me a bag of stuff you know and i said i don't want it man and they said if you give it to me i'm gonna throw it down the and I said, oh, 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 <laughs> that'll be the day, you know. So I said, well, this is the day. And I picked it up and I threw it on the toilet. And uh, I remember <laughs> flushing this thing. This guy had his arm <laughs> down the toilet trying to retrieve this $10 bag of heroin or something that he'd given me. And uh, so, man, you know, I walked out feeling like I had the world by the ass, you know. I had, like, you know, if I could do that, I could do anything. And I went back and I finished out the weekend at Birdland. And by the end of the week, Weekend that story had circulated around town, you know, among certain circles that boy, this guy's really clean, man. He's really straight. And we gave him some stuff, and he wouldn't take it, and you know. And uh, the upshot was that by Sunday night, somebody had called me for a record date on Wednesday, mm-hmm. and somebody else had called me for a record date by on Friday, and my my stock was going back up. So uh, I never called. <laughs> I never called the plumbing company. <laughs> the Acme Plumbing Company, these Acne poor people. people. I never called them out in at Long Island to tell them that I was quitting my job. And uh, Monday morning came, and I had finished the job at Birdland at four in the morning, and I wasn't about to go out to Long Island to be a plumber again, you know. I just finished three nights in the middle of New York City at the, at the world's greatest jazz club. So uh, I just never called them, you know. It was one of those things. Uh, I think about two or three weeks later, Quincy called me, Quincy Jones, said, listen, Busy's taking a band around the world. He said, Do you want to come along? I said, of course, you know, who, would, who could say no to that? So <coughs> that was uh, my next trip. 1956, I joined Busy's band and uh, we went straight from New York to Abadan, Iran, uh, on and on and on, you know, Pakistan, Lebanon, Syria, uh, Turkey, Greece. Uh, and points east, <laughs> and we spent several months on that trip. Came back into New York, spent uh, about two weeks in New York playing at oh, It was about a week playing at Furland, and went straight down to South America, and went all through every country in South America. And we picked up Lalo Schifrin down there, and uh, oh, we had a marvelous trip. It was the most exciting band i would ever been on, and uh, just just full of fire every night, and Dizzy was in top shape. And it was just a, a fabulous experience. Melba on that band? And Melba was on the band. Did and she take most of the solos, or did you split them? Oh, no, I, I played most of the solos, and she played a few. Was Al um, on that band, too, Al Gray? No, Rod Lovett was the other Al time the
0: yeah. Was he writing at that time
1: for the band? Uh, I think he wrote one or two tunes. Melba was writing for the band. Quincy was? Uh, Quincy was. Uh, Ernie Wilkins was on the band. Oh. He was writing for it. Uh, Benny Golson was on the band, he was writing for it, Phil Woods was on the band, uh, Marty Flax, uh, Lee Millie Morgan was in that band, was he? Lee Morgan came oh. on the band shortly, oh shortly after, he came on the band when we went to South America, Joe Gordon was on the band from Boston, Yeah. Uh, Evie Perry, Bama Warwick, uh, Charlie Persep was the drummer, Nelson Boyd was the bass player. And Walter Davis Jr. was the player. Did
0: you, or Phil, or Joe, receive any reverse discrimination? Being three of the, a few whites in a black band?
1: We had the finest experience. Nobody ever said a word about any kind of discrimination at all. In fact, we never even thought about it at all until we came back into the United States and we were going through customs and the reporters were there, and I was wearing a whole Arab outfit, you know, and, that I picked up in Damascus, <laughs> and. Uh, and the, and the reporters—the first thing—they didn't even care about the hour about it, but they wanted to know uh, what it was like to play with a black band, you know. And I said, "Oh, <laughs> we didn't even realize it, <laughs> you know." And it was so silly. It was—it uh, was the first indication that you know that, that there was anything, uh, any, any color deal going on at all, and there wasn't, you know, as far as as, far as that trip went. We didn't—we didn't even didn't think about it. It was—it was just one big band that was having a great time. Oh, man, we had so much fun on that trip. I could go on for hours and hours just about that trip. You know, it was a fabulous education, okay. uh, just seeing all of those places, seeing how the people lived, seeing how poor some of them were, and how rich some of the others were. And w- Were people ready for the music Did they, uh, uh, were they prepared for, for? It was actually uh, big, big band Bebop. People traveled in Iran. In Abadan, Iran, people had traveled on camelback for two weeks to come and hear this concert. I guess they heard it on shortwave radio or uh-huh. or drums, or I don't know how, how in the world they heard it, but but people, man, came from all over the place, from across the Russian border and from everywhere, just just of this band. And it was, it was unbelievable. We played for crowds where they went for cert, you know, and started, to, you know, you've seen the Beatles riots and the Frank Sinatra at the Paramount, right. stuff like that where people were trampling each other to get up to see this band, you know. And grab our coats and rip our, rip our did coats everybody off realize it was
0: th- going to be a short-lived band I mean did you know that when you joined it that, that it probably wouldn't survive after the tour as far as an ongoing band
1: uh, I don't know that we thought that much about it but you know I didn't I didn't plan on staying with it for a long time myself but but uh, uh, an aggregation like that you know had so many great stars in it that Incredible. it was almost impossible to keep it together. Uh, in this country because you'd be going to pardon me Youngstown you know you'd be going to Youngstown and Zanesville and and other places that were not nearly as interesting to go to as Cairo, Egypt or you know Syria or Lebanon or someplace where you would never been so so the excitement of you know part of the excitement of the whole thing was visiting all of these strange countries and just having mobs go insane over over the music you know people would just scream and fall in a faint literally they would fall out flat on their back and stretcher bearers would come in and put them on a stretcher and carry them out you know and you'd say okay man i'm gonna get nine people for this one you know and you'd stand up to blow and billy mitchell and i and phil and you know all the guys we used to have contests sometimes just to see how many people we could knock out you know of course dizzy could knock out more than any of them so so we never stood a chance really but it was an exhilarating experience, you know. It was, it was probably one of the greatest musical highs I ever had as far as sheer enjoyment of playing. Were you still playing at this time? Yeah, pretty much. I, I you know, smoked a little grass here and there, but we didn't get into it. Uh, I wasn't using any heroin. Or anything like that. So, so I came back and, uh, oh, within a matter of a couple of weeks I was asked to join the staff of CBS. And I went on staff there for a few years. And I did Gary Moore Show, and I did for a while I did Ed Sullivan Show. That was well-paying work. Was it the most rewarding work? Well, Gary Moore Show was was kind of fun to do. Who's the leader Mm -hmm. on that? Uh, A fellow named Erwin Costell, who's out Mm -hmm. in California now. He's a very fine musician. And uh, I just saw him a short time ago, as a matter of fact. I spent an evening with him out of his house listen to old Gary Moore tapes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what old people do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember
0: Gary
1: Moore. He used nice to watch that show yeah. listen to it. We had such a funny evening. We were playing, he hadn't played these tapes in 25 years, you know, so they were brittle. <laughs> and he ran them through this wonderful machine. And of course, about every hundred feet, uh, the tape would crack, you know, and it would fall to the floor. And he'd say, well, ooh, never hear that one again, you know. <laughs> By the end of the night, we had a big pile of tape on the floor. And, and uh, it was wow. all Gary Moore, he showed tapes. But uh, that, you know, we had a good band there too. Was, uh, Jimmy Nottingham was in that band and uh, uh, Hal McCusick. Clark? Uh, Hal McCusick. Oh. And uh, Trigger Alpert, Hank Jones is in the band, Chuck Wayne. Uh, you know, some good, fine players. Wayne Andre who, who did that show with me. So, in fact, I think that was his first big-time show. So, uh, we had a... Quite a good orchestra with that group at the time too. And uh, I went from there to doing a Broadway show where I had a part on stage, Hank Jones and I, and uh, a fellow named Ernie Furtado. Who's a now, yeah. It was called Copper and Brass. And we rehearsed for months and months. It was with Nancy Walker and Joan Blondell. And all of the musicians had acting parts, you know, and speaking parts and all, and pretty important parts in the show. And uh, we were all sitting in Lindy's opening night, waiting for the reviews. And at 2 a.m., they came out, and a big headline said, "Copper and brass more like zinc, uh, zinc and lead." <laughs> and so <laughs> I'll never forget that headline. So that was the end of an acting career. That was the end of the acting career. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, let's see. Uh, and all this while, I was doing all kinds of recording dates too. Just, you know, led up to around. The, well that show must have been in 1957 because uh we stopped the show one afternoon and they presented me with the downbeat award At the 1957 downbeat <coughs> new star award i'm sure that it did i don't uh, i don't think that you know the following week that my that my job quotient improved you know a great deal or anything like that but uh, just that that year in particular you know i was doing more and more jazz dates and i was uh you still going to sessions too just uh
0: just jam sessions
1: not too too many no because i was well i was busy you know most of the time but but there were more and more dates of of all sorts happening uh by 1958 i was finding myself on three or four record dates a day you know almost every day i remember one period there where where i went for nine months without a day off i mean seven days a week and i was doing at least three dates a day every Every day. Unbelievable. You know, sometimes five dates. Uh, some funny instances, I can remember doing a, a date with Michelle LeGrand, where... Michelle LeGrand's jazz? Yeah, Michelle LeGrand jazz. With Miles on that, too. And, uh, and that thing, we started the date at midnight, and Billy Byers and I, and I think Cleve, had been on four other dates already that day. And uh, this was the fifth date of the day, and we walked in. I'll never forget it. We were about 10 to 12, and I looked at this this first Ramon part, and I said, Hey, Billy, who is this guy? I had you know, never heard of Michel Legrand at that time. <clears throat> I said, Who is this guy? And He said, Oh, he's some French guy. I said, Well, look at this music you wrote. You know. And we looked at it, and we, we made a quick exit down to the Bank Café, and had a double scotch each. And I came back, and I sat down, and I said, uh, Pardon me, Mr. Legrand.